Did you know that the Tent Talks is supported by listeners just like you? Tent Talks is 100% patron supported. It takes time and effort and money to make these podcasts, and we are so grateful to the patrons who support our work. If anything we make has been useful or interesting to you, then perhaps you too would consider becoming a patron. For as little as £5 or $5 a month, you would have access to a lot of extra material. Studies, lectures, talks, music, interviews, loads of bonus stuff. Also once a month, the fellow traveller patrons meet up on Zoom for discussion and questions and answers and to talk to the hosts of the Tent Podcast, as well as special guests, including this month, Tanasha LeRae the first guest of our love series on the Tent Talks podcast. If you'd like to meet Tanasha and ask her any questions, then do sign up. Become a patron today by following the links in the episode description of this podcast or by going to patreon.com and looking for Tent Theology. Help yourself out, help us out, and meet fellow travelers who care about the same things you care about. Who could possibly say no to that? Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Stephen here. Welcome to the Tent Talks podcast. Our current series is on love. I've learnt over the last few years, if I needed learning it, that this is a hard and cruel world. But one of the things I've really noticed is how personal views of power, how personal attempts to hold on to power, lead to really hard and cruel institutions. We don't know how to love. Rather than look at all the bad things that we do over and over again to each other in organized and personal ways, I wanted to look at how to love. How can we find ways to make our power better for others? How can we find ways to personally pay attention to our neighbor, to consider others better than ourselves, to love our enemies, to do any of these things that the world desperately needs? We have to learn how to love. So with that in mind, I've been seeking the views of people whose words or actions I admire, who I see as examples of love in this age. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Chris Green. professor of public theology, which, which means my job is to think about the interface of theology and public life. And my, I actually teach at a school in Florida, outside of Tampa, Florida, Southeastern University. But my family and I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So for those who are not from the States, that's pretty far removed, one from the other. I'm, I'm living right in the 
the heart, the, the heart of middle America, which is where my wife and I were born 40 something years ago now. And we live here in Tulsa with our two sons. Our oldest is off at college now. She's at college at Syracuse, which is in New York. Again, far removed from us. I'm also on staff at a church here in Tulsa as a teaching pastor and do a lot of work as speaker and a lot of writing, although over the last few months, a lot of that writing has been pushed back. But I, I'm mostly interested in the ways in which theology interfaces with not just public life, that's my role as a professor, but human experience, right? So I, I just finished a book, well, it's been a, more than a year now, on theology and the arts. And I am writing now some smaller projects, kind of following up on that. So I'm really interested in theology and, and I think that marks most of what I do. So pretty eclectic work at times, which isn't always a compliment when people say your work is eclectic. But I, I'm, I think what holds it together is this, this vision of Jesus and his story at the heart of human experience and what attending to his story helps us to do, how it helps us to live humanly. What thoughts or, or how, where does love feature in your in your work personally? But where does love also feature in in Christian theology? Do you think? Let me start with Christian theology and then come to my work. I think it's at the heart, or at least it should be, and it often is indeed like formally at the heart of Christian theology because the claim is that God is love, and that all that God does is loving. I mean, that, that's pretty standard fare in Christian theology, although I think in much, much too much Christian theology, it's assumed that we know what that means, right? So there's an appeal to love, but out not a lot of thought given to what are we actually talking about, right? So I think sometimes the word is used vaguely in, that's not to say cheaply, although there's some of that too, <laughs> but there, I think there's a lot of kind of muddled use of the language of love. Bonhoeffer, for example, when he brings this up to talk about God as love, he says it's, it's really important that we not forget in that statement, God is love, that love does not is not something that exists apart from God and that defines God or limits God. It's a way of it's a way of naming what we mean when we say God, right? So when we say God is love, we mean this is who God has shown himself to be. And and then Bonifa rightly, I think, connects that to the story of Jesus, right? So when we say God is love, we mean God is the one whose reality is disclosed in the story of this Jew who's killed outside of Jerusalem. Like, that's what we mean by love. So you can see in that case, right, that he's not just simply throwing out the term, assuming everybody knows what it means, but he's he's pushing for some exactness, some some specificity. And that seems right to me, that we, we need to be careful not, not to be vague about it. Now, let me immediately qualify that with, there are other theologians who qualify love in such a way that it becomes unrecognizable, right? So if 
they, they bring up love to say God is love, but God is not like us. Therefore, the love we talk about when we talk about God's love is not like love as you and I experience it. And at that point, you know, what do we mean anymore by any of the words, right? So I think we we have to thread the needle. We have to be able to say that if it's true that God is love, there's mystery there. There's there's a depth of meaning that exceeds our capacities to track. And yet we do, all of us, have some experience of love that tells the truth about who we are and who God is to some extent. I think of that saying from Jesus, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more does God? Right. So he's assuming that there is some continuity, some resonance between our experience of love and who and what God is. Do you think, can you take a stab at even just defining love without using the word God? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know that theologically we would be allowed to do it because what I don't want to do is suggest that there is some something that is a condition for God or for us. But if I, but if I had to take a stab at giving a definition, I would say something like, and and that's a that's a striking image. Taking a stab, I'm thinking of the you know the Sacred Heart, the pierced heart of Mary. Now, uh, I love that taking a stab at the definition, but I think it it is it's giving. I think that's at the heart of it, and it's a kind of purity in giving, a giving that that is open, that's not grasping. This is not quite a definition, but at least the description. Love is that which gives, gives purely without possessing. And but of course, I would say we know that only because we've seen we've seen it revealed. We've seen that that is, in fact, what love is, and that that is what God has claimed to be because we know the story of Jesus. I think that's at least the Christian theological response. So, no Christian can get away from saying God is love. Like That's part of the toolkit. Everyone has to at least pay lip service to that. Yeah. Why is it that sacrifice, uh, giving with, pure giving with no expectation of return for oneself, why is that so little seen in, in so much Christian practice and theology then? Like what's, what's the rival to love? Uh, why isn't love actually the, the beating heart of so many of our systems that we've made? There's no short answer to this. And even my, the answer I'm going to give, if if it's if it's too long, you can edit out as much as you like. But I I think we have to begin with how severe the trouble is that we're in as as human beings. I I think I don't have experience of of all places and all people. Obviously, I don't know all cultures and all religious traditions. But my sense of it is that. It, it's pretty rare to see someone live a life of love over the long haul. You know, I think we we get glimpses of this kind of non-possessive giving celebration without demand of return. We, we see glimpses of that often, but I think it's pretty rare to see it sustained in a person's life or in a community's life. Or in the work of a theologian, I think I think it's pretty rare. And one of the reasons I think it's pretty rare is the nature of 
what in Christian tradition we talk about as fallenness, the fallenness of things, the gone wrongness of the world, as Francis Young says. And I think, and here's the Pentecostal talking, I think because of the ways in which evil resists it. I mean, I think we, I don't think there's a way to make good Christian sense of reality, recognizably Christian sense of reality, without naming the intentionality of evil, that evil works against love, that evil does what it can, and it can do a lot to interfere with our loving one another and our loving creation and our loving ourselves. And and so I think that the fact that it's rarely seen in a sustained way is testament to how fallen and broken we actually are, how clever evil actually is. And it says something then, I think, about the patience of God in overcoming that, right? That there's a way in which, I don't know if ironically is the right word, but there is something like irony in God. If if Christians are right in, in what we're saying about reality, I mean, and there's a lot riding on that, if, of course, but if Christians are right about what we're saying about reality, then the fact that this God remains with us and for us, in spite of how stubborn and stumbling our best efforts are, how stubborn we are and stumbling our best efforts are, that is a, a way of, of showing God's love, right? That God's patience with us in our lack of love is an indication of his love for us. Right? I think that's at, at least a wry aspect of this. That said, I don't mean to downplay the scandal of it. I think it is scandalous that Christians claim this to be true of God and then go out and live lives that make that nonsensical. I, I think we are meant to live lives that make God look good, not in some performance, performative way. You know, I, I don't think, I say this about my kids, and there's a, there's a long backstory here, but I, I don't want to make my kids nice. I want them to grow up to be kind. And, and there's a lot for me there. I don't want to make them appear to be good, which means play by the rules of polite society, but actually not form into persons of character and wisdom. I want to live with them and care for them in ways that over, over the long haul, they develop, they grow into people of, of deep kindness. And whether or not I'm actually doing that, I don't know. That's what I'm striving for as a parent. And I think that that, is what God is doing with us. And the fact that it seems to happen rarely, that what we get instead are a lot of people who are nice, but not kind. They're polite, but not loving in this full sense. I mean, I, I think that should trouble us. I think it should trouble us deeply. It should force us to ask some really hard questions about what is in fact true, what we in fact mean, and why it is that we do have such meanness such contradictions in you know that that show between what we're saying and what we're living and then sometimes not even that i mean there there are some people who who don't speak of god even though they would say god is love as a as i mentioned before they so qualify what love is that it becomes unrecognizable i mean there there are plenty of christian theologians and christian theological traditions that i think hardly speak 
rightly about God as love at all, apart from people loving it. And that brings me to one more complication. I, I don't think there's ever a straight line between how people live and what they say they believe. So I think there probably is a straight line between what people actually believe and what they do, probably. But we don't have access to that. There, I know for sure there's not a straight line between what people say they believe and what they actually do with their neighbors, with their spouses, with their kids. And so even though I think there are, I've met people whose theology, I think, is beautiful, but much of what they do is ugly and vice versa. I've met people whose theology is ugly, and yet somehow they manage to live and engage in ways that subvert their own thinking, subvert their own theology. So I think we we have to kind of acknowledge the ironies and complexities of what it means to be human. What what um what priority do you give to the lived experience of of feeling loved? Um like when it comes to Christian moral reasoning, for example, like you can have all the tongues of angels, you can have a good theology, but if 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 somebody doesn't feel loved when they're in 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 your sphere, at what weight do we give that intellectually or theologically? Well, I think we should give it massive weight. It becomes really difficult to handle, as as all of these things do, in that I think there are ways in which my not feeling love really might be more about me than about you. I mean, that that that's just the nature of human experience. I mean, there can be things that have gone wrong in me that make it so that when you love me, it somehow doesn't catch, doesn't hold, not because you're not giving it, but because I can't receive it. You know, I think there's an image in, in Jeremiah that Israel, he says, has, has carved or made for herself vessels that do not hold water. They leak. And so God is pouring out his life, but because they have vessels that have holes in them, that it won't hold, right? And I think that that is possible. It's possible. This this is, I think, a lot of what we mean. We talk about sin in the Christian tradition. We mean sin to sin is to damage myself or other people in such a way that it makes it harder for them to hold the love that's meant for them. Right? So I I think I can damage, and I'm I have done damaged people around me in such a way that it makes it harder for them to believe that they are being loved, to feel it. So when they are not feeling the love, I'm the one who's actually answerable for that, not them directly, not the person who's loving them or the community that's loving them. So I think I don't think we can talk about any of this without talking about holiness and without talking about sin. And, you know, that circles us back to the question you asked previous to this one, why do our theologies of sin so often become unloving when I think the right way to think of sin is sin is that which interferes with love. It's what makes it so that what should be felt is not felt. Yeah. So tell me, let's talk about holiness then. What, what, when you use the word holiness, how is that operating in your, in your mental landscape? What, what is holiness? Yeah, so when I say holiness, I mean whatever it is that makes it so that God can be with us in ways that are good for us, that that are not too much, that does not kind of over, it's not overbearing. So for me, holiness names that aspect of love 
that respects the otherness of the other. Often in Christian theology, holiness is is named as otherness. And then the point that's made from that is God is better than, right? So to say that God is holy is to say he's too good to be with the wicked, right? But I think I think the opposite is true, or something like the opposite is true. That holiness is what makes it so that God can be with us in ways that are only ever good. When we say God is holy, we mean that his nearness does not violate. That he, he can be present without undoing himself or undoing us. And we are holy. I mean, I think what makes the saints the saints is that they are able to be with others in ways that are life-giving. They're, they're, they're not vampiric. They, they don't prey on others. They pray for them, right? And that little play on words for me gets right at the heart of what we're talking about, right? That it's a holy life is a life that brings life to those it's shared with because, because it is loving. It's giving without possessiveness, right? It's, it's not sacrificial. And this, this is another kind of nuance that I think we have to attend to. Often Christians, when they talk about love, they'll measure love by the cost to the giver. Like, so love is known to be love because it's painful for or demanding for the giver. I don't think that's right. I think that can be an aspect of it. But I think love is known by the the life it brings to the other, not the life it takes from the giver. And I, I think when our theologies of the cross emphasize one and not the other, it very quickly distorts. Can you give some examples of positive of the the life giving theology? You mean are, are there some people or are there some schools of theology that you think get it more right more often? Oh, sure, absolutely. I think let me start with the people. I think part of what we're talking about. I mean, today happens to be All Saints Day. Ben Myers has this book on Rowan Williams theology, and there's a chapter in that book on the saints in Rowan Williams theology, and it's. It's tremendous. And I think this is where Rowan Williams is at his very best. And Ben Myers is at his best talking about the ways in which the saints are those people among us who live this life giving life. And they're, they're known by the effect they have on the people near them, right? That they, they alter for the good, the course of lives of people all around them. Now, I, I want to argue, of course, in, like in Roman Catholic tradition, you've got a canonical set, right? These are the saints. These people are saints. But that canonical set is really just meant to signal for us that these kinds of lives are possible. And I think that there are a lot more saints in the world than get on the list of saints. And I, I, I think also there are a lot of people, I'm not sure they are saints, but they do act in saintly ways at times. And I I even though it's scandalous in some ways that we only see glimpses, I I don't want to lose any I I want to be grateful for, let me put it positively. I want to be grateful and to give thanks for those glimpses, fleeting as they may be. And I I think there actually are many 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 glimpses like there are ways in which, even if it's hard to sustain, I think most people, and I mean overwhelmingly, most people 
show saintliness at times in their lives right we see glimpses of ah like this is the person at their truest right I see this with with my kids all the time right I mean moments when my kids are most alive when they are I would say most themselves that's where I think saintliness is coming through and when it does there's this kind of infectious joy this light that comes off of them the shine that's on them that doesn't shame or belittle or cast shadow on anybody around them but but in some ways is infectious in the best sense right it catches people up into the joy of the moment and I think that is not that rare it's rare to see that you know sustained over the course of a whole life it's rare to see an entire community caught up in that but I think it's hard to live a, a day humanly without at least hearing that or glimpsing that uh, and we we need to breathe on those those embers I think that that's where life is and can you capture that lightning in a bottle can you can that appear on a page or can that appear in a theological system of thought absolutely yeah I mean I I, I think it I think of so many poems and songs architecture I mean I think you that same experience and now and that of course brings up this question of how love is related to beauty right so mostly we've been talking about love related to goodness but it love is also seen in that which is beautiful that that shining forth that I just was talking about I think absolutely you can see that and the I I'm I was writing just yesterday about Maximus who I do I do a lot of work with with him and in he has he has a set of of two volume set in the translation of difficulties in the church fathers so he takes passages from the church fathers and has to clarify these ambiguities right what what, are, what were they actually saying and he draws attention in one of them it's an ambiguum 21 that he draws attention to this line from Gregory the theologian a sermon that Gregory had given a homily in which Gregory seems to make the mistake of saying John the forerunner of Christ said that the world cannot contain all the things that Jesus said and did well of course it's the gospel of John John the evangelist who says the world cannot contain not John the Baptist who's called the forerunner of Christ and so he Maximus draws this up holds this up for his readers and says well actually it's being presented to him as a problem what do you do with this and what what Maximus does is is astounding right he just I think this is an example of kind of love shining forth and he says oh I it would be easy to kind of dismiss this as a mistake but what if we took seriously that this was this was intentional or there's a there's a kind of deeper wisdom at work here and then he kind of leans into some reflections about what that might mean and comes comes to the conclusion that there's a kind of interchangeability between saints because what saints are any saint they are they're an embodiment of the character of God so if that's true for John the Baptist then it's also true for John the evangelist and so there's a way in which they can stand for each other and out of that kind of he says there's a kind of synonymity and reciprocity that exists between all people right and it's, it's just really lovely and I think lovely is exactly the right word like this lovely reflection that comes out of he he loves the work of Gregory 
He sees this seeming mistake instead of just being scandalized by it and distancing himself from it or standing over it with a kind of superiority. He's playful about it. And he asks, what what might be here? What might be at work here in ways that I did not expect? And then out of it spills this kind of beautiful account of what it means to be a person and how our lives are kind of deeply interwoven so much that we can stand for each other. And the communion of the saints, exactly. But in this way that is is delightful and playful and illuminating. And in all, all of that seems to me to have a kind of loveliness that is, is a sign of that life that is at work that I think we, we can absolutely can. Uh, the question you asked, I think was, can we catch that? Absolutely. I think, I think it has been caught and can be caught. And if you don't find it, is that reason? Like if you, if you don't find it in a, denominational mindset or in a in a book or a, a, a college you know if you don't find it in some expression is that reason to to say right uh, you know shake the feet the dust off your feet and move on absolutely yes i think and of course that has to be qualified with what i said earlier about there has to be some pretty serious self-awareness there i mean if is there a chance that some of the reason I'm not finding it is that I'm not able to hold it. I have to always be answerable for that. But I I do think for a lot of us who who were churched. Now I, I'm sure this is true outside of Christian circles as well. But like I said, I don't. That's not the world I know. I mean, I I've lived the life I've been given to live, and that happens to be a a, a very churched life. But I, I do think, at least for, for folks like me, there, there comes a point in which you have to be willing to say, I'm not going to excuse the behavior of others under the guise of addressing my own sin. Like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to be scapegoated. I'm not going to take on blame that is not mine. I want to be answerable for what is mine. But I'm not going to excuse the lack of love in a community or a tradition or a theology out of an appeal to sinfulness. There's our my or my own. And I, I think David Bentley Hart, I, no need to qualify all this, but, but Hart, I think, is exactly right about, about this point, that there's something about the heart of a child that hears about eternal conscious torment, a god a wrathful vengeful god and so on like there's something about the heart of the child that hears that and intuitively recognizes the wrongness of it that that cannot be and that disastrously many churches disciple quote unquote that truthfulness out of the child they by the time that child has become an adult they they've adjusted themselves to believing impossible and impossibly ugly things about god and I think we need to learn to listen more carefully to that childlikeness within us, right? If if there's a lack of love in, in a community, George MacDonald says it like this, I refuse to believe that God is any less good than the best people I know, right? That's a, that's a good baseline, right? Like if you're talking about God in ways that would be disastrous for people, that cannot be true of God, right? And I think if you are in a community, if, if your circles are circles in which God is being spoken of in ways that seem repugnant, yeah, you, you absolutely should flee 
from it. And and again, with all the necessary qualifications about self-awareness and accountability and answerability and all that. But yes, absolutely. I think you should walk away. We we actually have done a half hour, which is, a, I love it. It's a really lovely. Is there any last, is there any things I haven't brought up or any, any thoughts you'd want, you want to make sure I get out there? Yeah. Any last I, words I mean, for us? Yeah. Yeah. Last, last word for me, at least would be, I, we've talked mostly about Christian theology and, you know, of course that's, that's what I'm, what I've been given to do, but I don't by any means think that Christian theology is bound to say that Christians should be the most loving of all people. But I, I think this, if, if we are right at all about who God is, I mean, God is no less God of those who do not identify with this faith than he is with the people who are, and God is at work no less in their lives. And so I, I don't, I'm I'm not in any way scandalized or surprised by the ways in which there are many people who are not Christian, who you know belong to some other tradition, who show this love more readily. You know, to put here's a way of putting it. Like I don't think all the saints are Christians. Right. And I think as Christians, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, we want to colonize the holy people from other traditions. That's not what I mean. What I'm saying is the Christian theology done well tells us we should not be surprised to see this life of God, this life giving life of God at work in people who do not know our history and don't know our stories and know, know our beliefs like that. And we should rejoice in that and celebrate it. Yeah. The God who makes it rain on the just and the unjust. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, you know, often, and you know this, Stephen, but often Christians dismiss that kind of stuff, you know, as general revelation or as natural law. And it's, it's assumed as this, this, the God who takes care of others as, well, yeah. I mean, even I'm thinking specifically of Aquinas who says, you know, God loves everyone in that sense, but it's a limited sense. But then he loves others with this kind of abundance. I think that's that's worse than nonsense, right? That that the God who makes it rain on the just and the unjust, like that, that is not some limited, generalized aspect of God's love that, that we know better. That is the fullness of God's love. And those of us who are Christian, if we, if there, again, if there's anything to what we've been called to do, it's simply to bear witness to the fact that is who God is, right? God is the one who is giving you light and life and warmth and shelter and so on. Like that, that when your life is at its truest, right? When, when in your experience, you, the world lights up. And you think this is heavenly, like this, this makes it worth it, right? That's where God's work is seen. And that, that's what we rejoice in. That's what we're called to bear witness to. Chris, thank you so much. I really love, I really love this half hour, 40 minutes we had. Thank you so yes. much. Thank, thank you for making time for it. It's always good to talk to you. Oh, it's brilliant. It's really good. Is there, um, do you have a book or a, a website people could put, if, if anybody wants to know a little bit more about what you're doing, do you want to plug your yeah, stuff? Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'll, I'll just direct people to the substack that I'm doing, which is just cewgreen.substack.com and everything they can yeah. ever want more will, will show up there. So that's probably the easiest way to do it. 
Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. Blessings to you. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.